Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Marianne Freiberger. And I'm Rachel Thomas. So this week we have breaking news from the world of topology. Four mathematicians, Thomas Schlank, Jeremy Hahn, Robert Berglund and Ishan Levy, have disproved a conjecture that has been around since the 1980s. It's all very exciting, isn't it? So uh, this result was actually announced early on in the summer at the University of Oxford at a conference that was part of a programme organised by the Isaac Newton Institute for Mathematical Sciences, or as we like to call them, as their friends call them, the INI. So our collaboration with the INI means, Marion, you were lucky enough to speak to two of the researchers, uh, Thomas Schlenk and Jeremy Hahn, really soon after they made their announcement. What did you learn about their result? Well, it involves something called a telescope conjecture. And rather than proving that this uh, conjecture is true, these four mathematicians, they disproved it. So they showed it's not true. And what was particularly nice is that the four mathematicians involved are all still in early stages of their career. So, for example, one of them, Ishan Levy, is still actually studying for his PhD. So I got to watch um, the live stream of the announcement. And in the last session, when they finished, uh, that was over a series of lectures. And in the last session, there was just it was so great to witness this sort of joyous reception to the result and huge applause and, you know, other protagonists in this story that we'll find out about came up on stage. And yeah, it's just so nice to see the joy and the excitement that happens in mathematics when when results get proved. Um, And even though it's really high powered, pure mathematics, Marianne, you're going to be able to give me a gist of it, aren't you? Yes, I'm certainly going to try. Um, uh, And loosely speaking, the result involves spheres that sit within spheres in higher dimensions. Great. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's go on a journey through the wonderful world of homotopy theory. So we'll start with something called topology. So that's an area of maths that studies shapes, such as circles or spheres, for example. But it's not quite as strict and exact as geometry is. Here's Thomas Schlank. There's, there's different approaches to, um, uh, to how to study shapes and, and, and you know, kind of very broadly uh, geometry studies shapes uh, by thinking about uh, quanti- quantitative uh, um, um, measurements like volume or distance, but topology studies uh, more qualitative uh, properties that we say the, the properties of shape that don't change uh, if they're all made of rubber, so you can uh, twist them and flex them. And when you do that, what you realize that essentially the main properties that describe your shape best are, are the holes that you have in it. In it. So in topology, two shapes are considered to be the same if you can deform one into the other. By certain rules, you can bend, you can stretch, you can squeeze a shape. 
but you're not allowed to cut or tear the shape. So for example, a perfectly round sphere is actually topologically exactly the same as a deflated, sad looking football, because you could inflate the football to be the same, to be the same as the sphere. So they're considered to be the same. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, a sphere and a donut, for example, are not considered the same because a donut has a hole and the sphere doesn't. And the only way you could turn a sphere into a donut is to cut it open and then glue the edges back together again. Um, so as Tome was saying, um, it turns out that the number of holes is exactly what's very important in topology. Because mathematicians have proved that many of the surfaces that sort of nat naturally spring to mind when you think about surfaces are topologically equivalent to either a sphere with zero holes. So that would be like a ball or a balloon or a deflated ball or a deflated balloon. Exactly right. Or they are topologically equivalent to the torus, which has one hole. And the best kind of torus is a donut, but also famously another topological the equivalent shape is a coffee cup because a coffee cup can be smoothly transformed into a donut because the only hole is the hole in the handle. And you can see some nice videos of that on plus.maths.org. Exactly. Now, if something is not topologically a sphere or a torus, then it is equivalent to a torus with two holes or with three holes, etc. So just to summarize, the number of holes is important in topology when you think about surfaces, because at least for a certain class of very natural surfaces, it's the case that they fit into one of these classes, no holes at all, like a sphere, one hole, two hole, three hole, four hole, and so on. So holes classify these kind of surfaces. Okay, so hopefully that all sort of made sense for now. But the question is, how do you actually define a hole? Now, when you look at a donut or a torus, as it's called, it's pretty obvious that it has a hole. But once you try to put having a hole, that property of having to hole into words, it actually gets quite tricky. How do you actually do it? Well, here loops come to the rescue. Here's Tomer again. And the idea is that the, uh, the way to understand the hole is, is to say, let's say a one-dimensional hole is if you can draw a loop that you can contract. So for example, like in the example you gave, uh, in a torus, there's a one-dimensional hole because you can draw a loop and uh, around a, the torus, which cannot be contracted. And we say that the two-dimensional sphere don't have any one-dimensional holes because uh, every time you try to draw a loop, you can contract it. Uh, so that now makes things more concrete. So we can define a hole if there's a loop that you can't contract around the hole. So if I think of a torus, a donut, if I draw just a little tiny loop sitting on the surface, say with icing, because I'm thinking of donuts, that could be contracted to a point. But if the loop I drew on the top of the donut went all the way around the hole, on the icing side, then it can't be contracted to a point because it got caught on the hole in the center of the, of the torus. Yeah, and you could also draw a loop that sort of goes 
up and over the torus. So if if the torus is sitting horizontally like a donut sits on your plate, then the loop would kind of wind around the hole sort of vertically. Um, and that passes through the hole. So again, you can't contract that to a point as again, the hole, it's, it's caught in the hole of, of the donut. And actually, I can think of loads of ways to draw loops on a torus now that get caught by the hole because you could have a loop that passes up and over through the hole one time or you could have it go two times, or you could have it go three times. So yeah, I can think of lots of different loops that wouldn't be able to contract to nothing. Exactly, but the good thing about topology is that we don't really recognize differences when they're not actually significant. So we don't distinguish between loops that can be deformed into each other on the surface without cutting. So that could be because they wind around the hole in the same way or they wind around the hole like the same number of times and things like that. But if they wind around different holes, if the surface has more than one hole or around the same hole but a different number of times, well, then you can't deform them into each other and then they're considered different. So that's why topology is so great. It finds the kind of essential sameness of things and and spots the essential differences between things so it provides this way of dividing this collection of loops that you could draw on a surface into these equivalence classes where two loops are equivalent they belong to the same equivalent class if they can be deformed one into the other without cutting or tearing and um, all of this which we've described in quite a intuitive way um, can actually be made mathematically precise and the equivalence classes of loops on a surface, they have a name, they are called homotopy classes. So for a particular surface, there could be many homotopy classes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And now the collection of all these homotopy classes is called the homotopy group of the surface. And the exact makeup of this homotopy group gives you information about the holes on the surface and therefore tells you about the surface itself. Because as we noted earlier, the holes in a surface tell you a lot about the nature of the surface. And for those of you who know a little group theory, yes, the homotopy group is indeed a group in the mathematical sense. Now, the fact that earlier Thomas said one-dimensional hole suggests to me that there's such things as two-dimensional holes. Yes, they are. And I mean, this may sound a bit weird at first, but if you think about it, think of a deflated football. So that's a topological sphere. Now, it doesn't have a hole like the donut has, but it does have a hole on the inside, right? Because the inside of this football is empty. That's a hole. Um, and this inside is considered a two-dimensional hole. So how on earth do you describe this two-dimensional hole? You can't use loops drawn on the surface of the football because they all contract to a point. So they don't encircle this two-dimensional hole inside the middle of it. Yeah. Now, a loop, if you think about it, is really just a version of a circle drawn on the surface. I mean, it might be a bit squashed or twisted, but it's really just a version of a circle. So what we can do is go up a dimension and see if we can draw a version of a sphere on the football. 
So it's clear that you can do that because the entire football itself is a deformed version of a sphere. So if you imagine that, can you contract the sphere that you've drawn to a point in this case? Well, no, you can't because not without contracting the entire football to a point. And that's because the entire football is the sphere that we've, you know, drawn onto it, mapped onto it. So this sphere now encloses the inside of the football. So I guess in um, it's like analogous to our idea about the discussion we're having about loops. We say the sphere we drew onto the football encloses the whole. And because the sphere we've drawn is a 2D object, the whole is a 2D hole. Yes, exactly. Now I could picture that for a football. What about a torus? Does a torus have a two-dimensional hole? No, because it turns out that there's no way you can draw a sphere on it that can't be contracted to a point. So the torus does not have two-dimensional holes. So what does what does that mean? I'm having trouble thinking about drawing a sphere <laughs> onto a torus. <laughs> well, if you think about it, I mean, if you look at a torus... You can't really see a sphere in it, right? Like there is no obvious bit that is like, oh, that's a sphere. So that bit, I could just look at my sphere that is drawn onto the torus. It's just not there. So it turns out there there just isn't a meaningful way to paint a sphere on a torus that doesn't involve messing with a sphere by squishing it or cutting it open or anything. So topologically, you can't. So there's no two-dimensional holes in a torus. That's right. And again, as before, all this intuition that we've just talked about, it can be made mathematically precise. Well, thank goodness for that. I always <laughs> like it when things become mathematically pre precise. That's why we're mathematicians. <laughs> okay, so going back, in analogy to what we saw above regarding loops drawn on surfaces, you end up with a homotopy group of your surface, which tells you about the existence of two-dimensional holes. And... As before, loosely speaking, the group comes from looking at all the ways you can draw, or in mathematical terms, you can continuously map a sphere to your surface and seeing if those mapped spheres can be contracted to points. I really like that. So mathematically, we we can really, intuitively, we can really easily picture thinking of drawing a circle onto a surface and contracting it to a point or it being caught on a hole. And mathematically, we think of that as continuously mapping a circle onto a surface. And that gives us a way to understand the holes in terms of these homotopic classes. And the same thing for spheres helps you understand two-dimensional holes. Maths is so great. Okay, so now we've thought about one-dimensional and two-dimensional holes in surfaces. And there's one further step to go before we get to understand some of what the telescope conjecture says. Um, so, so far we have thought about mapping circles and spheres into two-dimensional surfaces to find one- and two-dimensional holes. Now, I know mathematicians love a generalization. Uh, we've got ways of defining higher dimensional shapes too. They're hard to visualize. I certainly can't think in anything dimension higher than three, but mathematically it's not a problem at all to define, for example, a three-dimensional sphere, a four-dimensional sphere, a five-dimensional sphere, and so on. Yes, and once you've kind of accepted that these objects exist, even though we can't visualize them, but like you say, mathematically it's no problem defining them, 
then you can say given a shape of interest in any dimension, um, you can ask whether you can continuously map, for example, a three-dimensional sphere into that shape. And whether this three-dimensional sphere that you've mapped into this uh, shape, if it can be contracted to a point. And if it can't, then you have a three-dimensional hole in your shape. Here's Tomer again. There's something which is kind of surprising and was actually not expected when, when this notion of homotopy group originally uh, was defined, which is that um, you know, if you use this method of measuring holes, of cons considering maps from spheres up to uh, contraction, you have high-dimensional holes inside low-dimensional spheres. So what I mean by that is that you can write down, a, for example, an example of that is that you can write down a continuous map from a three-dimensional sphere to a two-dimensional sphere that cannot be contracted, that cannot be deformed into, into a point. So understanding the general question about what are the homotopy classes of maps between spheres of different dimensions, uh, that became, you know, or it, it's still one of the most important questions in the field in homotopy theory. That is so exciting and so strange to think about. You can have higher dimensional holes in lower dimensional surfaces. That's exactly right. And we're now in this business of looking for holes of any dimension, say dimension K, in spheres of any dimension, say spheres of dimension N. And in analogy to what we explored above, we do this um, using the homotopy group that comes from map mapping the k-dimensional sphere into the n-dimensional one. And as before, the structure of this homotopy group tells you about the holes in question. Ah, this, this is very exciting. There's so many possibilities. We could look for, say, 17-dimensional holes in a 56-dimensional sphere or a 245-dimensional hole in the six-dimensional sphere or the 666-dimensional hole in the 500-dimensional yeah, sphere. Yeah, yeah, right, okay. Yes, you, you're, you're completely right. There's there's a lot of possibilities. There's sort of a double infinity of possibilities, really. There's infinitely many possibilities for the dimension of the sphere that you're looking for holes in it, and there's infinitely many possibilities for the dimension of the holes that you're looking for. Yeah, and it turns out that understanding all the homotopy groups associated to the possible pairs of dimension is a totally unachievable quest at present. Oh, that's sad. I don't like an unachievable quest. Yes, I know, but it's always also a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> um, and luckily, um, mathematical nature provides us with a wonderful simplification. Hooray! <laughs> so, as the mathematician Hans Freudenthal proved in 1937, so quite a, a while ago, these homotopy groups depend not on all pairs of dimensions n and k. So as you said before, it's, that would be like a double infinity because you have infinitely many choices for n and infinitely many choices for k. But these homotopy groups only depend on the difference k minus n as long as the dimensions involved are large enough. Well, wow, so that means that the homotopy group for, say, dimension, the pair of dimensions 4 and 3 
is the same as the homotopy group for the pair of dimensions five and four, because there's only one difference. And the same as the homotopy group for the pair of dimensions six and five, for example, because there's always a difference of one. Yeah, exactly right. And in a similar way, the homotopy group for the pair of dimensions six and four is the same as the homotopy group for the pair of dimensions seven and five, because in this case, the difference between the two dimensions is two. And these uh, two groups are also the same as the pair of the group for the pair of dimensions eight and six, because again, the difference is two. So there's you get these whole chains of homotopy groups, which are all the same. So mathematically, we say they're isomorphic. And, and we call these the sort of stable homotopy groups. Here's Toma again. So this means that if you're interested in um, maps between, in the collection of maps between two spheres, such that the difference of dimension is, let's say, 10, and the sphere that you map into is of high enough dimension, it doesn't matter what this dimension is. So we can... So so uh, so we can try to solve something that would be an easier problem first, which is to study the stable homotopy group of spheres. And that's a collection of uh, groups, of abelian groups, that determine, depends only on the difference between the two dimensions. So there's one for every integer. So Thomas says understanding all the stable homotopy groups may be an easier challenge, but I imagine it's still quite hard. Yep, it is. And Douglas Ravenel, who posed the telescope conjecture back in 1984, has said that he doesn't expect them all to be fully understood in the lifetime of his grandchildren. Um, and this is why mathematicians have stopped focusing on trying to understand more and more individual stable homotopy groups. So rather than going like, okay, we've understood the one, the homotopy group for the different of dimension of one, and then we look at the next one where the difference in dimension is two, um, which they've done. I think they've gone up to the a difference of 90 or something, but they've stopped kind of focusing on that so much. And instead to try, they try to understand their overall structure. So this may be a bit vague, but Ravenel has compared this to being in a huge mansion and deciding that instead of looking into each individual room to figure out what the mansion is like, you want to understand the structure of the whole building. So you sort of take a step backwards. And the telescope conjecture provided a potential method of getting to grips with this overall landscape with a whole mansion. But these mathematicians, Birkeland, Hahn, Levy and Schlank, they've just disproved the telescope conjecture. So this must mean that the set, the method suggested by Ravenel didn't work. Uh, here's Jeremy Hahn to tell us more. I think that that is fair to say. Um, and not only sort of did we prove that it doesn't work, but um, one consequence of what we do is that it fails drastically, and this landscape is much more complicated than uh, than predicted, maybe by Ravenel when he predicted this telescope conjecture. So, Marianne, does that mean we're back to square one? No, no, because there's always something to gain, even from a supposed failure. 
So all apart from the first stable homotopy group, for which the difference between the dimension is one, as we said, um, all stable homotopy groups apart from that one only have finitely many members in them, which means that each of them comes with a def definite size. And as Thomas explained, within the sequence of sizes of these stable homotopy groups, you can find patterns. And if you look at this you know, table and you can find the first few sizes appear on Wikipedia, and there are still papers published in which people push the knowledge higher and higher, say, okay, we computed everything up to 60, we computed everything up to 80, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it seems very random somehow. So the work uh, by many people that that the keystone of it is, is Ravenel's conjecture, and he had more than one conjecture, the telescope was just one of them, um, and all the rest were actually proved, not disproved, um, uh, suggested a certain patterns that explains this, 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 this sequence that seems apparently random um, and essentially detects, explain that there, there, those, if you, you can break this, break this pattern into certain wavelengths and see periodic phenomena appearing in them. Um, those periods are there, but they appear in a more complex way than, than, than let's say the, uh, the most opti optimistic possible hope, which was the telescope conjecture. But nevertheless, the way that this was dis the way we disprove it does give us positive information. It tells us, for example, it gives us a lower bound on how many different, how large those groups are. Oh, I'm so pleased. So all hope is not lost. Uh, so the telescope conjecture gave would have given a way to explain the entire landscape of stable homotopy groups. But since it's now been disproved, we know that that explanation doesn't work. But Thomas said, people have still spotted patterns within these collections of stable homotopy groups. Those patterns are there, but things are more complex. Like they must be more complex than what the telescope conjecture suggested. Yeah. And um, the result, so the proof that the telescope conjecture is not true, has opened up a wealth of new things for people to explore. Here's Tomer again, followed by Jeremy. So the telescope conjecture, you know, we, we haven't said what it is formally, but kind of, let me just say in a very, very vague uh, uh, way is that the telescope conjecture predicts that two things are the same. And what we did is show that they're not the same. And saying the two things are not the same is a very, you know, there's a lot, a lot to be left <laughs> to do if you do know the two things are not the same, right? Uh, the uh, Measuring their difference, how many things are in the middle, you know, we, we know that, you know, I can say a little bit more, we know that one of them is small and the other one is large, <laughs> but how much larger and what's in the middle, uh, and, and, and so there's really, really, you know, uh, we have definitely, this thing that definitely opens uh, uh, way more questions than it than it answered. We already have um, a follow up, well planned, uh, which is also the, the four of us uh, um, um, and also joined with uh, Shahar Karmeli and Leorianovsky. That's already a follow up work prepared. But there's so many other questions and so many other directions to go. It's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, I I'm very hopeful that the techniques here will continue to to yield new results and more refined information. And I would say also that, you know, 
there's a lot going on in homotopy theory in general, not just from us. There's so many new techniques and results right now, which is part of why we were able to, to do this after it had sat around for decades previously. And so it's an exciting time to, to be in homotopy theory. Now, results like this disproof of the telescope conjecture, they really don't happen out of the blue. Instead, they're built upon a collective effort by mathematicians over many years. Yeah, and that's the case here too. The Newton Institute event at which the result was announced was a satellite event that didn't actually take place at the actual institute in Cambridge, but at the University of Oxford. And... Um, this in itself was a follow-up event from a 2018 program that did, did take place at the Newton Institute in Cambridge called Homotopy Harnessing Higher Structures. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we like to hear about when we talk to researchers involved in the Newton Institute, that these sorts of research programs at the Institute give people these extended periods of time and they often follow on from programs that happened years before. And, and the, these, these series of programs, they sort of build up an area of maths. Exactly. And I mean, this is why research institutes like the Newton Institute, why they have such an important role, because they provide people with the time and space um, to really build these areas of maths. And for the four mathematicians who disproved the telescope conjecture, Thomas Schlank, Jeremy Hahn, Robert Berglund and Ishan Levy, the great thing was that the people who built up the field, including Douglas Ravenel, who first formulated the, tel formulated the telescope conjecture, all these people were in the audience as they announced their result. Here's Jeremy again, followed by Thomas. Well, I think that was a special moment for all of us. And so he was there and also Mike Hopkins, who had proved most of them along with his collaborators, you know, except for the telescope conjecture was there. So in the room was sort of the whole history of people who had interacted with these conjectures. And um, so, you know, that was, this was a good time to announce it. And, and we really appreciate the conference that was at the Newton Institute that was put on that brought all these people who had interacted with the conjectures together and seemed like the perfect time to uh, explain our work. This this conference was also uh, honoring, in fact, Mike Mike Hopkins, and, and we we felt that that's uh, that's very fitting. Uh, he was, you know, he's a great influence in the entire field of homotopy theory, and would definitely and a great influence on all of us in our work. So. so there we go. Without telling you exactly what the telescope conjecture says, we hope that we've given you a general idea. So really, it's about finding holes of any dimensions in spheres of any dimensions. And the telescope conjecture that Ravenel proposed would have given a way of understanding this mathematical landscape that would have arisen from this quest. But the conjecture has been disproved, but silver lining in every cloud this disproof has already itself opened up a new wonderful world for homotopy theorists to explore. Exactly. Now, if you'd like to find out more about the telescope conjecture um, and see lots of pictures getting the intuition across a bit better maybe than we did in this podcast, go to plus.maths.org and search for telescope conjecture. 
And to find out more about topology more generally, search for topology. That's it for this episode of Maths on the Move. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.